To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Is Yeshua God? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. The Master Yeshua is unlike any man who ever walked the earth, for the very reason that he is exactly like every other man, and yet not at all. It's this fully God, fully man dichotomy or paradox or dual nature or whatever you want to call it that has perplexed and frustrated both the faithful and the skeptic since the beginning. We don't like things that we can't stuff neatly into an intellectual box. And so we choose to either accept it as fact without thinking too much about it or reject it as scripturally unsupported or absurd, that it's been contrived by Christianity and not taught in God's word. But the biblical fact of Yeshua's simultaneous, unmingled deity and humanity is more than just a theological side note or curiosity. It's at the heart of the message of the good news. Because without one or the other, he can be neither our Savior nor our example. Unless he is both, he is not the biblical Messiah who can save. So since I opened up this can of worms in the previous episode, I thought it would be a good time to go ahead and address this non-negotiable foundational belief of our faith, that Yeshua, Jesus, is both fully God and fully man, as taught to us in the scriptures. And we'll be taking the next two episodes to talk about it. In this episode, I'll explain in what way Yeshua is God, which is what most people focus on. And in the next episode, I'll talk about Yeshua's humanity, which is equally as important, especially in the way it relates to our daily walk with him. So the obvious objection to the idea of Yeshua being God is that Yeshua is a man. And how can a man be God? The concept is, at best, unbelievable, at worst, polytheistic heresy. Because it threatens one of the most fundamental tenets of the faith, as encapsulated in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, Adonai, the Lord, is our God. Adonai is one. Moses clearly teaches us that Adonai is one, not more than one. Therefore, to believe in or to follow other gods is heretical. So to say then that Yeshua, a man, is God, and to even include the Holy Spirit in there somewhere, is potentially an affront to God's oneness. And if it weren't true, a sign that we're following a heretical faith. But the idea that God can have a physical form and be physically here on earth, basically putting him in two places at once, so to speak, has precedence in the Hebrew scriptures. For instance, in Exodus 13, it says that Adonai was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led Israel in the desert. Verse 21 says, And Adonai was going before their face by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them on the way, and by night a pillar of fire. 
So it says that in a pillar of cloud or fire, Adonai was going before them. Strange as it sounds, he was somehow right there in front of him, leading them on the way. But perhaps a little more relevant to the matter at hand, we also see God appearing to Abraham and interacting with him as a man. Genesis 18 verses 1 through 2 says, And Adonai appeared to Avraham among the oaks of Mamre. And Avraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw three men standing nearby him. And in verses 20 through 22, it says, And Adonai said, I go down now to Sodom and Amorah, to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. And Avraham was still standing before the face of Adonai. And it also appears, based on chapter 19, that while Abraham continued to plead with God to spare Sodom, only two of the men actually went there, and that they were apparently messengers of God, angels. The entire account is fascinating, if not a little difficult to follow, as the narrative moves seamlessly between referring to Adonai as the men and the men as messengers. You should read it for yourself because these excerpts don't do it justice. But the long and the short of it is that Adonai appeared to Abraham as three men, and it seems that while two of them went on ahead, one of them remained behind to continue speaking with Abraham. And this one is still identified in the text as Adonai. Abraham stood before Adonai, who was or had been in the form of a man. So the idea of God taking on a physical form in order to interact with humanity has clear precedence in the Hebrew Scriptures. But more importantly, in no way does it undermine or do damage to God's singularness as the one true God. He is God, and if he wants to also physically be here with us, he can do that. And this helps us to at least partially understand the first chapter of Yochanan, John which provides the most detailed explanation of how Yeshua can be God. The book opens with the quintessential statement, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things happened through him, and without him, not even one thing happened that has happened. There's so much going on in these three verses, so let's unpack it. First, the phrase, in the beginning, is an obvious reference to Genesis 1.1, which begins exactly the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John is referring here to the time of the creation of the world. He then introduces a being known only as the Word. And all we know of this Word is that in the beginning, he was not only with God, but he was God, alongside yet united. The word's deity, then, is affirmed in the next statement, that all things, presumably the creation of the world, happened through the word, that not even one thing happened without the word. And if we consider Genesis chapter 1, we see what John's talking about. Over and over again, God performed the creation of everything by speaking it into existence. He created everything by his word. And God said, let there be light. And God said, 
let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And God said, let us make man in our own image. What a strange thing for the one God, Elohim, to say, let us make man in our own image. So in the beginning, there was God, but also the word. And they were with one another and they were also one. So John clearly establishes that in the beginning was someone called the word. And this word was creating all things with God and as God. Then in verse 14, John says that something incredibly unusual happened to the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We don't instantly know what this means because John doesn't expound on it. But from the context, we can gather that this is John's explanation of Yeshua's miraculous birth, accounts of which are recorded in the beginning of the books of Matthew and Luke, and which, according to Matthew one twenty-three, is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Look, the virgin will conceive, and she will bring forth a son, and they will call his name Immanuel, which means, being interpreted, with us he is God. So John and Matthew is telling us that this word, who was with God and was God, at some point in history became flesh. That is, he became a human being. Now this begs the question, if the word was God in the beginning, was he still God after he became flesh? Well, at minimum, John implies this in verse 15, when he reports that Yohanan the Immerser, John the Baptist, who was born before Yeshua, according to Luke chapter 1, said, He who is coming after me has come in front of me, for before me he was. So, Yohanan the Immerser recognizes this word as a man, yet ascribes eternal quality to his existence. Though Yeshua was born after him, he somehow existed before him. Yet it wasn't the man Yeshua who preexisted Yohanan, obviously, but the word who became the flesh and blood human being, Yeshua. So according to John 1, the word was God, and he became the man, Yeshua, yet retained in some fashion the eternally existent nature of God. Based on this passage, then, we find extremely strong support for the idea that Yeshua is God. However, to put it this way would be something of an oversimplification and even somewhat inaccurate. What we should be able to comfortably come away with from John 1 is not that Yeshua is God, but that Yeshua is God in the flesh. A man cannot be God, yet somehow, some way, this man is also the Word who was with God and who was God, now also a man. Fortunately, this isn't the only place that the scriptures address Yeshua's deity. We start to get an even clearer picture when we look at Paul. Now, Paul describes Yeshua's mysterious dual nature in similar detail in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This is a pretty involved section, so I'm going to take it a little bit at a time, okay? So in this passage, Paul's talking to the Philippians about being selfless toward each other and counting each other higher than themselves. And he uses Yeshua's own personal example to make this point. 
Beginning in verse 5, he says, Let this thinking be in you that is also in Messiah Yeshua, who, being in God's form, thought to be equal to God, not a thing to hold onto. So in saying that Yeshua is being in God's form, present tense, Paul is speaking to Yeshua's deity. But then he alludes to what transpired when the word became flesh. Paul says that Yeshua thought to be equal to God, not a thing to hold on to. In other words, Yeshua had that equality, but as a man, he let it go. The word set aside his godliness in order to become a human being. And verse 7 expounds on this. But he emptied himself, having taken a slave's form, having been made in the likeness of men. Paul says that in being made like men, in being born as a human being, Yeshua voluntarily emptied himself of his deity, of his equality with God, such that as a human being, he was truly and literally flesh and blood, no longer in God's form, but now a slave's. And so that there's no confusion about whether or not Yeshua simply appeared human, but wasn't actually human, Paul goes on in verse 8 saying, And an appearance having been found as a man, he humbled himself, having become obedient to death, death even of an execution stake. So Yeshua didn't simply resemble a human being. He was so human that he could and did die. He'd become something that he hadn't been before, obedient to death. So look at what Paul's telling us here. Yeshua, being in God's form, being equal with God, was then made in the likeness of men. He was born and was found in appearance to be a man because he humbled himself and emptied himself of his godliness in becoming a human being. And he did this because he thought to be equal to God, not a thing to hold on to. As the man Yeshua, he laid aside his power as God. It's not a nice, neat little package, is it? He's God, and he's not God. He's a man, he's not a man. Now, some take this to mean that Yeshua is neither God nor man, that he's some kind of hybrid God-man, somehow greater than man, but less than God. But that's not what it says at all. It may come across to some as nonsensical or self-contradictory, but what it is, is Paul explaining the mystery of the Son of God. Because for whatever ambiguity or confusion that might arise from these verses, I believe Paul clears it up quite nicely in the rest of the passage. Since Yeshua willingly emptied and humbled himself, continuing in verses 9 through 11, therefore also God highly exalted Yeshua and gave to him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Yeshua the Messiah is Adonai, the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Oh, so awesome. Now, you notice that in the MJLT, and it was first in the CJB, by the way, it says that Yeshua the Messiah is Adonai which is an unequivocal assertion by the translator that Paul is saying that Yeshua is God. And here's how we get there. First, we need a quick lesson in Greek. The Greek word here for Adonai is Kyrios, 
I know, my Greek is terrible. And depending upon context, it either means Adonai, as in yud heh vav heh or uppercase Lord, or it means lowercase Lord, as in Master or Sir, unrelated to deity. This is the word that's used all over the New Covenant Scriptures when it's talking about the Lord Jesus or the Master Yeshua. It's also the word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, used to refer to yud heh vav heh or Adonai. It's the same word. So in the New Covenant Scriptures, we know how to translate it based on the context. For instance, like when an author is citing the Hebrew Scriptures and says, this is what was spoken by Adonai through the prophet. It's obvious from the context that the Greek word is referring to God. Now, translating it here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11 through 11, might be a little more difficult, but it's really not that hard to figure out. Because Paul here isn't just making a statement, he's quoting Scripture. Paul says that God will exalt Yeshua's name such that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And this comes straight out of Isaiah chapter 45, verses 22 through 24, which says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. By myself I have sworn, a word has gone out from my mouth in righteousness, and it will not return, that to me every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said, only in Adonai are righteousness and strength. So think about it for a minute. Isaiah says that every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance to God, to Adonai, and that next to God, there is none else. But then Paul says that God will exalt Yeshua's name to be above every other name, such that also with him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Adonai. And the reason we can translate this here, not simply as master, but Adonai, is because Paul is signifying Yeshua's oneness with God by ascribing what Isaiah says about God to Yeshua. He's equating Yeshua's name and authority with God's. He's affirming and asserting Yeshua's oneness with God as Adonai, in whatever sense it means for Yeshua to be Adonai. So while maintaining the paradoxical tension between Yeshua's humanity and deity, Paul implies here that Yeshua will share in the allegiance due only to Adonai, because he himself is Adonai. This passage in Philippians, by the way, also puts what Paul says in Romans 10 into a possibly new light, which would have a direct impact on our salvation. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth, Yeshua is master, and believe in your heart that God raised him out of the dead, you will be saved. So again, the word here translated master is the same Greek word translated Adonai in Philippians. Now, while I don't think it'd be right to unequivocally assert that it should be understood here in Romans as Adonai, because the immediate context doesn't indicate it can, it's difficult to escape the similarity in content between these two passages. First, both of them are written by the same author, Paul. And second, 
They're both talking about confessing Yeshua with our mouths or with our tongues. It actually uses the same Greek word for confess in both places. So while we can't say with absolute certainty, it's worth considering that confessing out loud with our mouths that Yeshua is Adonai, that he is deity, is a salvation issue, that it's a mandatory part of our confession of faith. Now, I won't assert that as fact, but based on these two passages, I do think it's the case. Now, the way that Paul expresses his understanding of Yeshua's deity in Philippians 2 is hardly a departure from his other teachings about it. In fact, he actually states things a little more clearly, for example, in his letter to the Colossians. Here he actually expounds on the concept we first saw in John 1. In Colossians 1.15-17, he says, Yeshua is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, because in him were all the things created in the heavens and upon the earth, those visible and those invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he himself is before all, and all the things have held together in him. So Paul calls Yeshua here the image of the invisible God, which is an astounding statement. Since it's not a normal occurrence for God to be seen, he is, in effect, invisible. But in Yeshua, we see the invisible God. Yeshua is God's visible image, not an idolatrous image of a different God, but a visible picture of the one true invisible God. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 3, that Yeshua is the exact imprint of God's substantive existence. In other words, when we see Yeshua, we're seeing an image or exact imprint of who God substantively is. Notice neither author comes right out and says that Yeshua is God, because even though it's true, it simply doesn't reflect the intricacies and nuance of reality. To say then that Yeshua is God's image or imprint expresses the existence of a sameness without asserting a precise equivalence. Now, I don't take this to mean that our authors were avoiding the question of Yeshua's deity, but rather attempting to quantify something that is, in a very real sense, unquantifiable. Paul further underscores his view of the deity of Yeshua by reiterating the word's first role in creation. He says that all things created in the heavens and on the earth were in him, and that everything was created for him and through him. Paul also affirms Yeshua's continuing role in creation, saying that all things have held together in him. Yeshua is actively holding creation together. It should be obvious then that these aren't the kinds of things that any mere mortal could do. Only God himself and the word of God who became flesh. And as if all that weren't enough, it's actually in chapter 2 of Colossians where Paul makes perhaps his boldest, clearest statement regarding Yeshua's divine nature. Almost in passing, Paul simply says in verse 9 that in Messiah, all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And that's the mystery in a nutshell right there. 
Somehow, some way, within the physical person that is the Messiah Yeshua, lives all the fullness of the deity of Adonai. Though Yeshua is a man, having emptied himself of that which made him equal with God, he remains indwelt with the fullness of all that God is, reflecting God's image and bearing his exact substantive imprint. So Paul, like John, upheld Yeshua's unique, one-of-a-kind nature as both man and God. The question that remains then is whether or not the Master Yeshua also had this understanding of himself, that even though while on earth he lived in a way that was obviously submitted to the Father, did he still understand and know that he was also fully God? And indeed he did, as we talked about in the previous episode. According to the testimony of Scripture, to call oneself the Son of God was no less than to overtly claim deity, a claim which was considered blasphemous and worthy of death. John records several incidents in which Yeshua's fellow Jews were actively trying to kill him precisely for saying or implying this. In Yohanan, John chapter 5, verse 18, it says, The Yehudim, the Jews, were looking to kill him all the more because he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. In chapter 10, verses 30 through 31, Yeshua said, I and the Father are one. And again, the Yehudim took up stones so that they could stone him. In chapter 10, verse 32, the master asked why they wanted to kill him. And they replied in verse 33, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And finally, in Yohanan 19.7, in response to Pilate initially refusing to execute Yeshua, the Yehudim answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, for he made himself son of God. Despite their disbelief, the Jews weren't misunderstanding Yeshua's claims. On the contrary, the master asserted his eternal existence and deity in unmistakable terms in Yohanan chapter 8, verses 56 through 59, when he said, Avraham, Abraham, your father, was extremely joyful that he would see my day, and he saw and rejoiced. The Yehudim therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Avraham? Yeshua said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, before Avraham became, I am. Therefore, they raised up stones so that they could throw them at him. Yeshua is saying that before Abraham became, before he was born, before Abraham existed, he existed. Yeshua was. In his words, I am. But more than simply stating a fact that he pre-existed Abraham, just like he pre-existed Yochanan the Immerser, in saying I am, the master was doing exactly what they were accusing him of. He was ascribing to himself the very same words that God said of himself to Moses as recorded in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. And Moshe said to God, Look, I am going to the sons of Israel, and will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they will say to me, What is his name? What should I say to them? And God said to Moshe, I am who I am. He also said, This is what you will say to the sons of Israel, I am 
has sent me to you. So for Yeshua to say, I am, to his Jewish challengers, would have been heard as an unambiguous allusion to this account between God and Moses. Just as Paul would later echo this pattern, the Master Yeshua cited Scripture to make his point clear. To ascribe something previously said by God about God to himself. And how do we know that this is what the Master was intending to communicate? Again, Yohanan 8.59, Therefore, they raised up stones so that they could throw them at him. The Master Yeshua didn't repeatedly rile up the Jewish crowds with purposely misleading claims of deity in order to facilitate a martyrdom based on false pretenses. On the contrary, it was his completely truthful claims which ultimately gave the Jewish authorities the ammunition they needed to bring about his unwarranted conviction, sentencing, and death. The mystery of Yeshua's deity, of his dual nature as both fully man and fully God, may be untidy and ultimately unfathomable, but it's not unexplainable or unacceptable. And though the scriptures don't overemphasize it, and certainly not at the expense of his equally real humanity, it's nevertheless fundamental to the master's essence, as well as a clear teaching of scripture. The writer of the book of Hebrews exquisitely proclaims in chapter 1, verses 3 through 10, that Yeshua, the Son of God, is the exact imprint of God's substantive existence also sustaining all the things by the spoken word of his power, having become so much better than the messengers, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the messengers did he ever say, You are my son, today I have brought you forth. And to the messengers, indeed, he says, He is making his servants a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is to the age of of the age. At the beginning, Master, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. From the beginning, Adonai has been one and will always be one. And his word, which spoke everything into existence, was both him and with him. Everything was made in, for, and through the word, creating all things with God and as God, alongside, yet united. Then the Word humbled himself, thinking that being equal to God was not something to hold on to. And he made himself flesh and blood. He became Yeshua. And though he had emptied himself, setting aside his deity and power, within him bodily, nevertheless still dwells all the fullness of the deity. He came after Abraham, yet was before. He shares God's authority because it is his own. The man, Yeshua the Messiah, is the Son of God. Indeed, he is the image of God, God in the flesh. He is Adonai. What else can we say but repeat the doubting disciples' confession? My master and my God. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. 
Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.